Amen. Thank you again, church, for being here. Um, we had a, you guys don't have to worry about it that are in the building. We evidently had a little technical glitch with our live stream, but I'm grateful for Chris, Daniel up there. They've got it work out, worked out. But if you're joining us on our live stream this morning, you may have gone to the link that I sent out this morning and it wasn't working. So hopefully you've been able to go back to the YouTube page and correct the, uh, click the corrected link and join us. And we apologize for that. That's one of those uh, challenges when you're trying to work with technology. Uh, it's another reason why I'd rather have the church in the building than the church in your living room. And uh, so thank you again uh, for being here. We're going to be looking at a passage of scripture in Acts chapter 4 in just a few minutes. Uh, but before we do so, um, you know, I wanted to just kind of talk about where we are right now and what we feel like is happening uh, and, and where we feel like things are going to go for the next uh, several weeks. Um, you know, we've been privately talking as a staff, and I've been conferring with a number of uh, fellow pastors, both here in the city of Decatur and throughout the state, over the course of the last several weeks about what it was going to look like once we were going to start gathering together. I've probably watched four different webinars. I've been in probably several different Zoom meetings. Um, one thing I can tell you is that none of us have any idea what to expect right now. Um, none of us have any idea what to expect a month from now or, or by August or whatever with regards to this virus, with church, with what it's going to look like, with how to start back again. I would love for us to be able to have church just like we always did and have Sunday school classes and have our kids in their Sunday school and our adults in their Sunday school and um, all of that, but it's just not feasible right now and it's very difficult to make that happen. And so we're doing the best that we can, like all other churches. Um, most of the people that I've talked to, church leaders, and even some of our leaders down at the State Board of Missions, have said that for the most part, most churches are foregoing anything other than Sunday morning worship until sometime during the summer. Um, we, there are some churches, even locally, that uh, are not starting back today. They'll be starting back uh, first of June. I've even heard of a couple of larger churches in the Alabama area that uh, are not planning to start back on campus activities until August, um, simply because the size of their crowds trying to fit them into uh, auditoriums uh, would cause for many of them to have to have up to seven or eight or nine different worship services. So we don't have to worry about that right now. We, we, I went back and forth as to whether or not we should start back today or whether we should wait two or three more weeks. I really didn't, don't feel like we're going to see any substantial difference three weeks from now than we will now. And so I felt like it would be good for us to be able to at least get God's people back in God's house um, in, his, in the best way that we possibly can. Um, we know that there are several of our church family that uh, just for, for wisdom probably don't need to be out in mixed crowds yet. Um, and uh, they're continuing to stay home and worship by live stream. Uh, and so we're glad that we're able to bring that option. And uh, they will be back eventually uh, when they feel like it is a little bit safer to come. Um, I know that we're not going to have small groups on campus for several weeks. One, until we figure out just how worship is working. Um, but then there are other challenges like how do, you, how do you bring Sunday school classes back on when you've got two different worship services going on? And, and basically where you go to Sunday school is determined by where you go to worship and vice versa. 
and how do we have Sunday school? If we have Sunday school at one hour for our kids, we probably need to have that also for their parents. Um, and so that puts kids and the parents in one hour and other, other classes in a different hour. So we're still trying to work through how to make all that happen, and we hope to have some answers for you soon. Um, but for right now, this will be kind of our new normal for a few weeks. And then once we feel like we can, uh, we can open up to more things, we will do that. Um, but thank you again for your prayers and your patience and your encouragement through this whole process. Uh, it's, been, it's been great to have uh, interaction with some of you online on Facebook, and you've been checking in and saying hello to the church family. You've been answering kind of my goofy questions just about where you want to go eat or things like that, um, just, to, just to have some kind of interaction there. Uh, so thank you for that, and uh, appreciate you being here this morning. If you have a copy of God's Word, I'm going to ask you to open up to Acts chapter 4. And we're going to be looking at a passage of Scripture in just a few minutes, beginning in verse 5. We are in the second week of a sermon series that I'm doing here in May, entitled Unleashed, Being or Becoming an Acts 1-8 Church in an Acts 8-1 World. And you may wonder where, where that title came from. It came from a conversation I had recently with uh, one of our denominational leaders about some of the changes that we have been experiencing during this pandemic over the last eight or nine weeks. And in that conversation, this leader said, you know, we are all trying to learn how to be Acts 1-8 churches in an Acts 8-1 world. And by that, he meant that we are all trying to learn how to effectively fulfill the missional mandate that God has given us in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, in a world where life as we have known it has been suddenly and forcefully upended, and the church has become more of a scattered church than the church that gathers in the building like we are used to. Um, when we see in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we see that the early disciples were commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ and empowered by Him to be witnesses of the gospel, to take the message that He had given them, to take the message that He had that He imparted into their life. He said, you take this to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. And as a New Testament church, we still believe in the Acts 1-8 missional mandate of the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe that what Jesus said to those disciples there on that mountain that day still applies in His church 2,000 years later that we have received power from the Holy Spirit and that we are called to be witnesses in our Jerusalem, in our Judea, and outward to the Samarias and the ends of the earth that God places us in. That, that is our missional mandate. But what we see in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, is that the persecution that begins to arise in Jerusalem uh, as there begins to be tension between these followers of Jesus Christ and the message that they preach that Jesus was Messiah, that that tension between them and the Jewish religious leaders caused many of them to flee Jerusalem for safer places, and the church went from being a gathered church there in Jerusalem to a scattered church sent out to fulfill the missional mandate of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's my hope and prayer that in this time, and over the last couple of months, that we will use these unforeseen and unwelcomed pandemic as a catalyst <coughs> to be more strategic in accomplishing the Acts 1-8 mission that God has called us to accomplish. I want to be clear. From the beginning, 
It has been my firm conviction, and it's proven to be absolutely true over the last eight weeks, that the coronavirus cannot shut down the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the coronavirus may have temporarily halted our ability to have worship gatherings in a building, but it didn't stop the church from being the church. The coronavirus is going to change how we do church for a little while in that we're not able to come and just kind of do what we did before. But God's people have still found ways to worship together. I'm very grateful <clears throat> that we had online technology in place even before this happened uh, through some of the leaders that we have here and the servants that work in that ministry to be able to provide an option that allowed us to broadcast live so that we weren't sent searching frantically for a way to do that in the weeks, uh, uh, in that one week that we had. But church was still able to go on. We were still able to provide some sort of, of song and, and time in God's Word together. Uh, but it's not the same thing as being in God's house. <coughs> and excuse me for my coughing. My throat gets very dry when I talk. And, uh, and then the allergies are not helping things very much. So I got some water here to help me out with that. Um, I've listened and found that God's people have found in this time of pandemic new ways to enter into gospel conversations with people. Um, I have heard of people in our church who've been talking about conversations that they've had with people in their neighborhoods or at their, through their workplace who don't have hope in Christ, who are kind of struggling with things. Um, I've heard about pastors who have, who have shared within our networks about opportunities that they've had to share the gospel in unique ways. <clears throat> read an article this week uh, about one of our pastors in Montgomery who was able to share the gospel uh, over, over Facebook, FaceTime with uh, someone who their church member had connected them to who didn't know Christ. And so we've seen that happen. The coronavirus has not shut down church and it has not stopped the gospel from advancing. God's church here at Central Park has still been faithful to worship and to pray and to even give generously through this time to ensure that we're still able to fulfill the Great Commission as God has called us to do so. And I believe that what our world sees as one of the greatest obstacles that our generation has ever seen is actually one of our greatest opportunities to be the church that God has called us to be. And I believe that this obstacle will serve potentially as a catalyst for spiritual awakening in our community and throughout our nation. <clears throat> and so, if we're going to be an Acts 1-8 church in this new Acts 8-1 reality that we find ourselves in, then the question is, how do we effectively accomplish the missional mandate of the Lord Jesus Christ? How do we operate as an Acts 1-8 church in a scattered eight, Acts 8-1 world? And how has God unleashed us as His church in these days to be on mission to share the gospel like never before. <clears throat> in order to do this, in order to understand why the early church in Acts 8.1 was so effective in being able to go out and take the gospel into the regions of Asia Minor and, and even eventually all the way to Rome, in order to see that, we need to look at what happened between Acts 1 and Acts 8. What, what was the church doing in Acts chapter 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 and 6 and 7 that... that caused them to be ready when, when persecution scattered them throughout the world 
to be so effective. And so we've been looking at several passages. We looked last week at Acts chapter 2, and we looked at the topic of what I would call biblical and relational community. We saw that early on, these followers of Jesus began to gather together in homes and to, and to share things together. They began to share the apostles' doctrine, and they began to share in prayer together, and they began to share meals, and, and they began to engage in what we would call real community, not just fellowship, not just having a dinner on the grounds together, but, but they began to invest their lives in one another as these new brothers and sisters in Christ. And that if we're going to be the church that God has called us to be, that it's going to, it's going to come as we invest in biblical and relational community. As a matter of fact, I, I think that's really the thing that we're missing over the last two months. I don't think people are missing coming and sitting in a seat and, and singing songs. I don't think that's what we're missing. I don't think we're missing listening to Bible teaching because you're listening to Bible teaching if you're, if you're tuning in on our live stream. As a matter of fact, I've heard people say over the last few months that they've listened to more sermons in the last two months than they've listened to in the last two years because they haven't had as much to do. So they've been, you know, I, I, I talked to some church members. I talked to my family my, my parents watch our live stream, uh, and they also watch the live stream from their church. Um, I've talked to church members who say, well, you know, I don't have anything to do. I don't have anywhere to go, so I've been, I've been watching this preacher, and I've been watching that preacher. Uh, it's not that we have a, a lack of good teaching available to us. What we're missing is seeing the brothers and sisters in Christ that God has aligned us with. That's what we're missing. <clears throat> we're missing the church gathering together. And that's what community is about. Today we're going to look at the second key component of what it means to be unleashed to be an Acts 1-8 church, and that is being unleashed for what I would call bold witness. Now in the passage that we're looking at today in Acts chapter 4, before we read it, I need to set up the scene for you so you know what's happening. <clears throat> in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John go to the temple to attend to worship in their daily prayers. Uh, they're, they're faithful Jews. They've come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, but that didn't make them any less Jewish. And so they go to the temple to pray. <clears throat> and while they're going to the temple, they see a man at the gate who is lame. He is unable to walk, and he is sitting at the gate, and he's begging for money. And the context of the scripture would suggest to us that this was this man's daily pattern. Uh, the Jews in Jerusalem would go every single day at certain prescribed times to the temple to give their prayers this man knew that <clears throat> this was a way to support himself, was to sit outside the temple and to lean on the generosity and the benevolence of others to be able to provide for him. And so he would sit there and beg for money, and God's people, when they would come in, if they had some money to spare, God's Word makes it very clear that we're to take care of the poor and the marginalized in our, in our midst. And God's people would share their money with him so that he would be able to provide food for himself. <clears throat> so... This guy's probably been at that same gate over and over and over again. Peter and John have probably seen him multiple times. But on this particular day, the Holy Spirit speaks to Peter and John, and Peter engages this man and says to him, Look at me. <clears throat> and then he says, I do not have any money. I do not have silver or gold. But what I do have in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. The Bible tells us that immediately this man gained the ability to walk. Strength returned to his legs. This man, we don't know if he'd been lame from birth or, or for a long period of time, but 
He was immediately able to stand up. He was immediately able to walk. He was immediately able to, to and you can imagine what that scene looked like as, as this man probably had great joy, was jumping up and down. People who had seen this man for years and years and years all of a sudden recognized that a miracle had taken place. And so all of a sudden, everybody going into temple that morning stops and a crowd begins to gather around to see this lame man who is now walking. <clears throat> Peter takes opportunity of this, uh, or takes advantage of this opportunity to begin to declare the gospel because immediately people's attention are drawn to Peter and John and thinking these are miracle workers and we need to pay attention to them. And Peter says, this man was healed in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And he begins to share the gospel message in Acts chapter 3. The Bible tells us that many people believed as a result of seeing the miracle and then hearing the message that Peter delivered. And as part of that, because of this, this, this giant crowd and what was happening, the temple guard arrest Peter and John and take them into custody where they are then sent to stand before the Jewish religious leaders. We believe this to be the Sanhedrin. Uh, that was the ruling council of about 70 Jewish leaders. And they are called to, to, to answer for what took place. And that's where we pick up in Acts chapter 4 in verses 5 through 22. It says, On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. <clears throat> now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. Good luck with that strategy. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. They were all praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. <clears throat> now as we read this encounter between Peter and John and the religious leaders, one thing that strikes me right away is the power of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ in, in Peter and John and how it transformed these ordinary, everyday nobodies into an effective force of gospel witness. 
Peter and John are, they're nobodies from Galilee. They are not people who are considered to be people of, of political or social influence. They're not people who were considered to be anyone that, that anybody would listen to. Uh, they are simply Galilean peasants who had attached themselves to a Jewish rabbi from Nazareth who eventually was crucified by the Jews and the Romans. But they are the agents that God uses to declare the gospel not only there in Jerusalem, but eventually even before the leaders of the, of the Jewish people. And this helps us to see that the gospel, when the gospel is rightly believed, when the gospel is rightly applied, when the gospel is rightly understood, that it does not call us to be religious consumers who simply go through spiritual motions. Instead, it calls us to be an effective and bold force for the gospel. Peter and John are, are simply agents of gospel witness and transformation. And I believe that, he, that God is calling you and me as followers of Jesus Christ to be bold witnesses who take the gospel wherever God sends us, just as he did with the early disciples of Jesus. And I believe that the 21st century church needs a massive clarification on the mission and a spirit-infused boldness to be unleashed to be the church that God has called us to be. And so we see this spiritual truth that was on the screen just a second ago. We talked about it last week, that the gospel does not create a religious organization. The gospel creates a transformed people. The gospel does not create a religious organization it creates a transformed people, a people who are called to go into the places where God has sent us and to give bold and effective witness for the transformation that has happened in our life. Unfortunately, today's Christian church is mired in religious consumerism, spiritual complacency, political posturing, shallow doctrine, mystical faith, prosperity idolatry, and missional apathy like we've never had before. We have the greatest message of all messages, and yet so few of us in the church ever share the gospel with someone else. We have the truth that is the power of God into salvation for everyone who believes, and yet somehow or another we've turned that truth into a private religious experience not meant to be shared with others for the fear of offending them. Now, my aim today is not to make you feel guilty for not sharing the gospel. My aim today is to remind us that the power of God inside of us can effectively empower us to be bold witnesses for Christ, just as it did the early followers in Acts chapter 4. Now, to do that, we need to understand three crucial ingredients for bold witness that are in your notes. And those are simply this, that bold witnesses trust in the indwelling power of the Spirit. Bold witnesses trust in the indwelling power of the Spirit. As I was reading this passage of Scripture and thinking through the words that Peter spoke, it immediately brought to mind a question. If you understand the biblical timeline of the Gospels and Acts, the question is, what happened to Peter between the night of Jesus' arrest and this moment standing before these Jewish religious leaders. This is the same Peter who just 
three months earlier, cowered in front of a small crowd outside of the trial of Jesus and even completely denied knowing who Jesus was. This is the same Peter that when he was standing outside in that crowd that night, listening to what was happening inside, a little peasant girl, probably a young teenage girl, comes up and says, I know you, I've seen you with Jesus. And Peter is afraid of the accusations of a small preteen girl to the point that he says, I do not know the man. What happens to Peter between that night and this day? Peter didn't even go into the proceedings for Jesus' trial for fear of being recognized and potentially arrested. We know that Peter didn't go to the crucifixion probably for fear of being arrested and crucified alongside of Jesus. Tradition tells us that in later years, Peter would eventually be arrested for being a follower of Jesus Christ and that he would be crucified. Jesus Jesus predicts this or prophesies this in John chapter 21. But the Bible tells us that Peter, when he was being crucified, requested that they crucify him upside down because he didn't feel like he was worthy to be crucified in the same manner as the Lord Jesus. What takes Peter from being a a guy who denies Jesus in front of a crowd of nobodies to one who boldly declares the gospel in front of the same people that sentenced Jesus to death just three months earlier. Two things. One is the power of the empty tomb, and the other is the indwelling of the Spirit of God. These two things happen subsequent to Jesus' arrest, and I believe that the power of the empty tomb and the indwelling of the Spirit of God were the two catalysts that changed Peter from a cowering coward to a bold witness. Peter had seen the risen body of the Lord Jesus Christ himself several times. Peter had watched as they took the lifeless body of Jesus and placed it in a borrowed tomb and watched the, the, the stone be rolled over it and then himself three days later ran to that very same tomb and saw that tomb empty and the burial shroud laying there with the body of the Lord Jesus Christ gone. Peter had experienced breakfast with the risen Lord Jesus on the Sea of Galilee in John chapter 21. And he had had physically had conversations and talked to Jesus. He knew that Jesus Christ was alive. He had experienced firsthand the power of the resurrection. And he had also experienced firsthand the indwelling Spirit of God as the Holy Spirit came upon the followers of Jesus in Acts chapter 2. Prior to that, the Holy Spirit had simply dwelled among God's people, but he had never dwelt inside of the people of God. And in a very powerful way, the Holy Spirit came inside of Peter and all of those early followers of Jesus. And it was this internal manifestation of the Spirit of God that transformed all of the disciples into bold and courageous witnesses. We see this in verse 8. <clears throat> when they are asked, by what name or what power did, did you do this? And it says, Peter filled with the Holy Spirit said to them. The power that made the lame man walk was not the power of Peter's words. It was the power of the Spirit inside of Peter. And that same Spirit filled Peter completely in that moment before these men who seemingly controlled his earthly fate. 
And that same spirit made Peter and John into witnesses who would proclaim the gospel before the most powerful men in Jerusalem. Now when it says that Peter was filled with the spirit, that doesn't mean that Peter experienced some sort of additional experience of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean that somehow or another between Acts 2 and Acts 4 that the the Holy Spirit had left Peter and then all of a sudden in Acts 4 he returned. The Bible tells us that the Spirit of God already dwelled within Peter. But what it does mean is that in that particular moment where faithful gospel witness was needed, the Spirit of God filled Peter with a special spiritual empowerment to speak the gospel to the Sanhedrin with boldness and clarity. It was literally the fulfillment of Jesus' words in Luke chapter 21, verses 12 through 15. Jesus spoke these words to Peter and the other disciples just shortly before he was arrested and crucified. And he said, Before all of this is over, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison. And you will be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. And you will bear testimony to me. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. Those words were spoken by the Lord Jesus to Peter. And those words came to fulfillment in this moment where Peter stands before his accusers in Acts chapter 4. And that same promise holds true for you and I as followers of Jesus today. Whenever we are put in a position where we are called to give effective or faithful witness of the gospel, the very same spirit which filled Peter in that moment and gave him the words to speak will fill us and speak the words of the gospel through us into the lives of lost and dying people that God has placed in our paths. It's not a matter of being effectively trained. It's not a matter of of having all the right words. It's not a matter of being able to answer all the questions. The same spirit that filled Peter and emboldened him to speak the gospel to men who could have banned him from the temple, who could have incited a riot of Jews to stone him, or even trump up false charges and have him crucified like they did the Lord Jesus. The same spirit that emboldened him can also empower and embolden you and I, to be witnesses for Christ in our neighborhood, in our workplace, and even among our lost family members. (coughs) Now more than ever, people are looking for something with spiritual truth and for real hope in our world. And you and I have that in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you and I are ever going to be bold witnesses, then you and I, like Peter, need to trust in the indwelling power of the Spirit that wants to use us to spread the gospel as he did Peter and John. But not only do bold witnesses trust in the indwelling presence of the Spirit, but they also know the critical urgency of the message. Bold witnesses know the critical urgency of the message. When Peter was called to stand before the religious leaders, they asked him an interesting question. By what name or what power did you do this? There was no denying the fact that a supernatural miracle had taken place. Everyone knew this lame man. All of them had passed by him on their way into the temple dozens and dozens of times. But when the Jewish leaders asked that question to Peter and John that day, they had no idea that they were setting themselves up, and they had no idea that they were throwing a fresh bone to a hungry dog. 
So Peter said to them, It is by the name of Jesus Christ that this man stands before you healed. Peter wanted to proclaim to everyone gathered in that assembly that day that the name of Jesus Christ can not only bring physical healing, but true spiritual salvation. And one thing that is abundantly clear from the moment the early followers of Jesus were indwelled by the Spirit of God in Acts chapter 2 is that they understood immediately the critical urgency of the gospel. The Bible says in Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit came to indwell them, they suddenly began to proclaim Jesus in many different languages. They began to share the message of who Christ was and what Christ had done and the things that He had taught them. And we see here in Acts chapter 3, as they go by and they see this lame man, they proclaim the gospel to him, they heal him, and then they begin to proclaim the gospel to people around them. The followers of Jesus understood the critical urgency of the message of the gospel. They knew that Jesus Christ was not just another Jewish rabbi. Jesus Christ was the Son of God. And they knew that Jesus had come to preach a message of repentance from sin and faith in Him as Lord. And they knew that people that they, that they dwelt among were caught in deep spiritual darkness, that they were lost without hope, and that Jesus had shown them that the time had come for the people of God to repent and believe in God's anointed one. Likewise, you and I must understand the critical urgency of the gospel that we say that we believe. You and I need to understand the urgency of lostness that currently surrounds us right now, There are more lost people living in the United States of America than at any other time in our nation. Right now, there are more lost people living in Morgan County, in Lawrence County, in the greater Decatur area than have ever lived in this city before. You and I live in a post-Christian culture where millions see Christianity as nothing more than a personal religious belief system that might work for some people but not for everyone. And there are people that we come into contact with every day, who may even profess to be a Christian who cannot articulate simple, basic facts about the gospel or who Jesus is. For many in our culture, being a Christian means nothing more than going to church, getting dunked in a baptistry, and trying to be a good moral person. But that is not the gospel. That is nothing more than a damning message of religious works. There's a critical need and a critical urgency to share the gospel as never before. And if you and I are going to share the message, we need to understand two things that Peter understood. And number one, that is that the gospel has been validated by the power of God. The message that we share has been validated by the power of God. Peter says, it is by the name of Jesus Christ whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. If there's one thing that validates the Christian message above all other religious belief systems, it is the empty tomb of the Lord Jesus Christ. This gospel that you and I believe has been personally validated by the power of God in the resurrection of Jesus. And it's also been personally validated by the transformed lives of millions and millions and millions of people over 2,000 years. This isn't just a nice message that some people believe that makes them better people. It is literally the power of God to salvation. But not only that, it is the only message that can truly save. It is the only message that can truly save someone. It's the only message that can bring someone 
from a point of spiritual darkness into a point of spiritual life. That's what Peter says in verse 12 when he says to him, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is absolutely no other name that can save. Not Muhammad, not Buddha, not Moses, not Joseph Smith, and not Oprah Winfrey. Not your deacon dad or your mom who played the piano in church. The only name that can save is the name of Jesus Christ. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only message that can truly bring salvation to a lost and dying world. We need to understand the urgency of this message. And we need to understand that millions of people in our world have only heard enough of the gospel to hold them accountable, but not enough to save them. Bold witnesses understand the urgency of the message. But finally, bold witnesses surrender fully to obey the will of the Master. Bold witnesses surrender fully to obey the will of the Master. Peter's encounter with the religious leaders left them dumbfounded. The Bible says in verse 13, when they saw the boldness of Peter and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that these men had been with Jesus. When they saw the courage of Peter and John, they realized that these men had an incredible amount of boldness, but they also realized that these were nobodies. These were unschooled, ordinary men. What does that mean? It meant that that Peter and John didn't have the formal religious training to understand the things that they were saying and to, and to preach the way they were preaching. They didn't understand how to equate prophecy together the way that they were. But they understood also that these men had been with Jesus. It was a reminder that they didn't need formal religious training because Peter and John had spent three years in the school of discipleship with the Lord Jesus Christ themselves. They'd heard Jesus teach religious truths hundreds of times. They'd been commissioned and sent out by the Lord Jesus to preach the gospel into the kingdom of God, into the villages. And they also remembered these words and taught them to the early disciples and eventually recorded them for later believers like you and me. I love what it says at the end of verse 13 when it says that they took note that these men had been with Jesus. In other words, it was obvious that Jesus' spiritual fingerprints were all over them. There was no question where the allegiance of Peter and John lay. And I wonder if the same thing can be said of you and me today. When we engage with people in our culture, can it be said that people take notice that you and I have been with Jesus? The reality is that when the gospel truly gets a hold of you, it changes you. And that change is evident to others as they see the power and the truth of the gospel. And this is why bold witnesses fully surrender to obey the will of the Master and the Lord Jesus. Peter and John were called back by these religious leaders and they were basically warned and threatened and told, we cannot deny that a miracle has taken place, but we don't want you to speak any longer about this Jesus guy. And look at what Peter says in verse 19. Which is right in God's eyes? To listen to you or to listen to him? You be the judges. But we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Peter and John say, You can tell us to be quiet, but the Lord Jesus told us to go and be witnesses. You decide at the end of the day which one we should do. Our Lord and Master commanded us to be vocal while you command us to be silent. 
He commanded us to go and make disciples while you command us to go and say nothing. And the reality is, is that witnessing is not a suggestion. It is a command from our master. Witnessing is not a suggestion that is reserved for a a vocal few. It is not something that only is reserved for those with the spiritual gift of evangelism. Witnessing is not something that you have to take a class to be formally trained to do. Witnessing is simply making yourself available to the Spirit and obedient to the Master and then going where He says and speaking what He tells you to speak. In closing, I want to close with this idea. What if over the last couple of weeks you came to me and you told me that you were not feeling well and you went to a clinic and you had tested positive for the COVID-19 virus? And you said, Pastor Matt, just pray for me. I don't know what to do. Just pray for me. And I told you that I had discovered a cure that will cure the coronavirus, but that nobody would listen to me and that the government would not accept the cure. And I told you if you would just take this one thing and if you would do that, that you would immediately be cured of that virus. You would probably think I'm crazy, but in a world of conspiracy theories, that's probably not a a far-fetched idea. And let's say that you trusted me enough that you took this cure that I gave you and immediately you sensed a, a, a healing. And you went back to that same clinic and you tested negative. If you were able to experience personally a cure for the coronavirus, would you be silent about that? Would you, be, would you be quiet about that? Would you say, well, you know what? I don't really want to go against what Dr. Fauci and our leaders are saying. I don't really want to, I don't really want to cause a stir. If you had experienced the symptoms of the coronavirus and found a cure that would immediately cure that, you would not be silent about that. You could not be silent in a world where thousands of people are dying every single day from this disease if you and I know the cure. Well, the Bible tells us that there are millions of people right now in our world that are infected with the virus of sin. And that one day, if they don't find the cure for the, for the virus of sin, for the spiritual virus of sin, that one day they will die and spend eternity apart from Christ. And the reality is that you and I know the cure. We know the cure because we've experienced it ourselves. We know what it's like to repent of our sins and to trust Jesus Christ by faith. We know what it's like to believe the gospel. We know what it's like to go from a, from a point of spiritual death to a point of spiritual life immediately. We know what it's like to go from a sense of hopelessness to a sense of hope. And yet, so many of us as followers of Jesus Christ stay silent when there are people that live across the street, when there are people that work in our workplace, when there are people in our own families who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ and we stay silent and don't share the message with them. May that never be the case. May we be bold witnesses for Christ. Now being bold witnesses don't, doesn't mean that we, are, uh, we don't use wisdom in our conversations. Being bold witnesses does not give us a, a reason to be brash. But we do need to be bold. We need to be more bold about sharing our faith and we need to be more bold about engaging in gospel conversations with lost people. I believe that in the days and the weeks ahead that we will have more opportunities as followers of Jesus Christ to share the gospel than we've ever had before. And my hope and prayer is that as we seek to become an Acts 1-8 church in an Acts 8-1 crazy world, 
that you and I would be submissive to the Holy Spirit, that we would trust in the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, that we would believe the critical urgency of the times and the message of the gospel, and that you and I would just be obedient to the will of our Master and share with the people that God places in our path. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes if you're here in the room? And We're going to close out today. We're not going to have a, a formal invitation like we normally do in church for a few weeks. We'll just close in prayer. But if you are here today and you need to talk to somebody about having a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, I'll be glad to talk to you afterwards or you can talk to one of our staff. If you're watching on our live stream and God's Spirit has made you aware that you do not know the Lord Jesus as your Lord and Savior and you would like to have a relationship with Him, if, if you would like to, by faith, trust in Him and repent of your sins and enter into a relationship with Him, we'd love to be able to talk to you about that. So probably there'll be a, a number and a, an email address that'll go up on the screen for you to be able to do that as well. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the opportunity to gather together as your church family today. We thank you that the gospel is not silenced by the culture that we live in or the times in which we are engaged. We thank you that the church can still continue to be the church. And we thank you in your gracious sovereignty for allowing us to be able to regather together again today. And now, Father, I pray that that same spirit that dwells us, that dwelled in the hearts of Peter and John and the early Christians there in the book of Acts, that that same spirit will propel us as followers of Jesus Christ to be bold witnesses of the gospel into the places where you send us. Father, I pray that you would help us to be able to have gospel conversations with lost friends and family members over the course of the next several weeks. And that God, when you place us in that path that we would trust that the same promise that you gave those disciples in Luke 21, you've given to us, that, that you'll give us the words to speak, that you give us wisdom, and that you'll speak through us into the lives of people that need to hear this message. We pray for anyone that's listening today that does not know you, God, that you would, that you would create a spiritual hunger in them and that you would show them their need for Christ, that you'd give them the, the faith to trust and believe today. God, we thank you again for allowing us to gather together today and pray that all of it has been an offering that is worthy of you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.